chapter 10. And uh, welcome back. Here I am. I've um, just popped my headphones on and uh, have a little think about where we are, what we're doing. We're doing chapter 10 of The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle. The most wonderful things have happened. They certainly have. The most wonderful things have happened and are continually happening to us. Well, you weren't saying that in the last chapter, were you? It was all doom and gloom. Zambo would run off with postage stamp money to Manaus Post Office to get some walnut whips, a triple pack of the new flavours, coffee. What's the other flavour? I can't quite remember. All the paper that I possess consists of five old notebooks and a lot of scraps from the fish and chip shop. Bag of scraps, please, and a fish cake. One of your cheap ones left over from yesterday. And I have only the one stylographic pencil. But so long as I can move my hand, I will continue to set down our experiences and impressions. For since we are the only men of the whole human race to see such things, it is of enormous importance that I should record them. I should what? Record them, whilst they are fresh in my memory. And before that fate, which seems to be constantly impending, does actually overtake us. Whether Zambo can at last take these letters to the river, or whether I shall myself in some miraculous way carry them back with me, or finally whether some daring explorer, coming upon our tracks with the advantage perhaps of a perfected monoplane, that would be nice, wouldn't it? I've just perfected this monoplane, and uh, I've decided to fly towards that uh, remote plateau. Should They were obsessed with monoplanes, weren't they, these authors of this period? H.G. Wells's um, fantastic uh, novel, Tono Bungie. Unrecorded, uncommitted to audiobook form, apart from by me, blowing my own trumpet. Um, available on Audible. God, I'm smooth. Tono Bungie, H.G. Wells. Major part of it about, well, it's all about the man who invented and... Um, perfects a monoplane. So it was a preoccupation by those Edwardians, or Edwardians, Edward, Edwardians. Perhaps of a perfected monoplane should find this bundle of manuscript. In any case, I can see what I am writing is destined to immortality as a classic of true adventure. Someone nearly had to do the Heimlich manoeuvre on me then, on the morning after our being trapped upon the plateau by the villainous Gomez, of course, the villainous half-breed Gomez, we began a new stage in our experiences. The first incident in it was not such as to give me a very favourable opinion of the place to which we had wandered. As I roused myself from a short nap after day had dawned, my eyes fell upon a most singular appearance upon my own leg. My trouser had slipped up. Hello, exposing a few inches of my skin above my sock. On this there rested a large purplish grape. Astonished at the sight, I leaned forward to pick it off. When to my horror it burst between my finger and thumb, squirting blood in every direction. My cry of disgust had brought the two professors to my side. Most interesting, said Summerlee, bending over my shin. An enormous blood tick, as yet, I believe, unclassified. The first fruits of our labours, said Challenger, in his booming, pedantic fashion. We cannot do less than call it Ixodes Maloney. Ah, yes, that must be his name, then. Malone. The very small inconvenience of being bitten, my young friend, cannot, I am sure, weigh you weigh with you as against the glorious privilege of having your name inscribed in the deathless role of zoology. Hmm, I think I could uh, live without that. Ixodes Waglandi. Have a bloodless tick named after you. Unhappy, well, it's close. Unhappily you have crushed this fine specimen at the moment of satiation. Filthy vermin, I cried. Professor Challenger raised his great eyebrows in protest and placed a soothing paw upon my shoulder. 
You should cultivate the scientific eye and the detached scientific mind, said he. To a man of philosophic temperament like myself, the blood tick, with its lancet-like proboscis, and its distending stomach, is as beautiful a work of nature as the peacock, or for that matter, the aurora borealis. 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 It pains me to hear you speak of it in so unappreciative a fashion. No doubt with due diligence we can secure some other specimen. There can be no doubt of that, said Summerley grimly, for one has just disappeared behind your shirt-collar. Ah, yes, wearing a shirt-collar in a tropical climate. Those were the, the mad things that we used to do in the Edwardian days of adventure. Yes, Zambo, would you go and uh, take my shirt-collars down to the banks of the tropical stream and uh, starch them for me? Would you uh, beat them out on a rock? And uh, don't drop any of my collar studs, will you? They're diamond, diamond-backed collar studs. Challenger sprang into the air, bellowing like a bull, and tore frantically at his coat and shirt to get them off. Summerley and I laughed so that we could hardly help him. At last we exposed that monstrous torso, fifty-four inches by the tailor's tape. His body was all matted with black hair, out of which jungle we picked the wandering tick before it had bitten him. Out of which jungle? But the bushes round were full of the horrible pests, and it was clear that we must shift our camp. Oh, I see, out of which jungle we picked the wandering tick— but the bushes round, nothing to do with Challenger then. I was worried for a moment. But first of all, it was necessary to make our arrangements with the faithful Negro, who appeared presently on the pinnacle with a number of tins of cocoa and biscuits. Ah, yes, um, there is fresh cocoa here, but uh, I bought some tins and biscuits. Huntley and Palmer's um, arrowroot thins, which uh, I know you all enjoy. I'll leave them here on this uh, melamine tray. Melamine, possibly not in interesting that um, a little discussion on the um, on the comments about um, walnut whips and when they were invented back in the nineteen nineteen tens, I think. So, actually, my my fantasy about walnut whips was um, almost historically accurate, and Zambo might well, in some parcel from. Uh, from a philanthropic league of women in England have sent them out to the benighted the benighted peoples of Amazonia. And he might have uh, got a taste of his first walnut whip down at the mission. So it's nice to be inadvertently, you know, historically, historically correct. Of the stores which remained below, he was ordered to retain as much as would keep him for two months, the Indians were to have the remainder as a reward for their services. A curly-whirly and a bag of cheesy watsits, between ten of them, and as payment for taking our letters back to the Amazon. Some hours later we saw them in single file, far out upon the plain, arguing about the curly-whirly, having already eaten the watsits, each with a bundle on his head, making their way back along the path we had come. Down. No, it doesn't say making their way back along the path we had come. We came along the path we had come, come along the path, making their way back along the path we had come. Fair enough, but there's something, something to the modern ear that doesn't work out very well there. I don't know what it is. Zambo occupied our little tent at the base of the pinnacle, and there he remained our one link with the world below. And now we had to decide upon our immediate movements. We shifted our position from among the tick-laden bushes until we came to a small clearing, thickly surrounded by trees upon all sides. There were some flat slabs of rock in the centre, well, that's useful, with an excellent well close by. And there we sat in cleanly comfort, while we made our first plans for the invasions of this for the invasion of this new country. Birds were calling among the foliage, especially one with a peculiar whooping cry which was new to us. But beyond these, 
Sounds there were no signs of life, beautifully put. But beyond these sounds, there were no signs of life. That was marginally better. Our first care was to make some sort of list of our own stores, so that we might know what we had to rely upon. What with things we had ourselves brought up and those which Zambo had sent across on the rope, we were fairly well supplied, certainly with billiard tables. Most important of all, in view of the dangers which might surround us, we had our four rifles and 1,300 rounds. Hmm, well, you might need a few more than that, I suggest. Also a shotgun. But not more than 150 medium pellet cartridges. Oh, Oh dear. In the matter of provisions, we had enough to last for several weeks, with a sufficiency of tobacco and a few scientific implements, including a large telescope and a good field glass. <coughs> Is that the one by Carl Zeiss? Those Zeiss bins, fantastic. All these things we collected together in the clearing, and as a first precaution we cut down with our hatchet and knives a number of thorny bushes which we piled round in a circle some fifteen yards in diameter. This was well, a good idea, a little defensive ring, a picket. In fact, as was mentioned earlier, this was to be our headquarters for the time, our place of refuge against sudden danger and the guardhouse for our stores. Fort Challenger, we called it. It was midday before we had made ourselves secure, but the heat was not oppressive, and the general character of the plateau, both in its temperature and its vegetation, and in its vegetation was almost temperate. The beech, the oak, and even the birch were to be found among the tangle of trees which girt us in. One huge ginkgo tree—let me try to say that again without clicking—one huge ginkgo tree, topping all the others, shot its great limbs and maidenhair foliage over the fort which we had constructed— in its shade we continued our discussion while Lord John, who had quickly taken command in the hour of action, gave us his views. "'So long as neither man nor beast has seen or heard us, we are safe,' said he. "'From the time they know we are here, our troubles begin. "'There are no signs that they have found us out as yet, "'so our game surely is to lie low for a time and spy out the land. "'We want to have a good... We want to have a good look at our neighbours before we get on visiting terms. But we must advance, I ventured to remark. By all means, Sonny, my boy, we will advance, but with common sense. We must, we must never go so far that we can't get back to our base. Above all, we must never, unless it is life or death, fire off our guns. Good advice, that's very good advice. Now, you might, might have noticed that there's a bit of a a heavy gate going on here, in and out. It's pumping a little bit, um, but it works quite well. It's on this new little thing I'm trying out called a road, road, Roadcaster Pro, and um, it's really quite fun. I got it yesterday, I've been playing about with it, and um, it's quite a nice little um, Class A servo-based board, which you can uh, plug lots of things in, there's a weird, rather pathetic selection of uh, special effects you can throw in, like that, which I'm not sure I'll be using terribly much. Let's see what else we've got. That's much more useful in a jungle situation, isn't it? I might um, might adopt those crickets a few times. Oh, I'd write crickets, thank you. Yeah, go away. So there are a few rather weird little things which are supposed to be suitable for podcasters, but... Um, I may be avoiding some of those. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. And, uh, yeah, so that's, um, that's a little gadget that I'm mucking around with. And I'm sitting, you know, in a rather echoey room. So there is a lot of... Um, and uh, my, my throat's not too good today. So, you know. Shall I stop moaning now? Shall I stop moaning now? Yes, I should. And uh, there we have it. There we have it. And uh, let's move on. We've just... Um, uh, but you fired yesterday, said Summerlee. Well, it couldn't be helped. However, the wind was strong and blew outwards. It is not likely that the sound could have travelled far into the plateau. Hmm. By the way, what shall we call this place? I suppose it is up to us to give it the name. Give it a name. There were several suggestions, more or less happy, but Challenger's was final. 
It can only have one name, said he. It is called after the pioneer who discovered it. It is Maple White Land. Maple White Land it became. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And so it is named in that chart which has become my special task. So it will, I trust, appear in the Atlas of the Future. Well, I don't remember seeing it. The peaceful penetration of Maple White Land was the pressing subject before us. It's a shame that uh, Maple White didn't enjoy a, a peaceful penetration um, himself when he landed on on the bamboo break and uh, a couple of bam- pointy bamboo sticks went through his um, rib cage and knocked his head off. So the peaceful penetration of Maple White Land was the pressing subject before us. We had the evidence of our own eyes that the place was inhabited by some unknown creatures, and there was that of Maple White's sketchbook to show that more dreadful and more dangerous monsters might still appear. Of course, they have seen the old pterodactyl. That there might also prove to be human occupants. Occupants. And that they were of a malevolent character was suggested by the skeleton impaled upon the bamboos, which could not have got there had it not been dropped from above. Well, he could have jumped, he could have fallen, he could have run over the edge, he could have been being chased by a herd of, I don't know, baboons or something, a squad of baboons, a troop possibly of baboons. I think there is a there is a collective noun for baboons when they're hanging out together, but I can't for the life of me think what it is. Our situation, stranded without possibility of escape in such a land, was clearly full of danger, and our reasons endorsed every measure of caution which Lord John's experience could suggest. Yes, it was surely impossible that we should halt on the edge of this world of mystery when our very souls were tingling with impatience to push forward and to pluck the heart from it. Very violent imagery, isn't it? We therefore blocked the entrance to our zariba, Hello, I don't know that word. There's lots of words I don't know, but Zariba, let me see if my see if my Kindle knows it. Zariba. Also Zariba. Noun in Sudan and neighbouring countries. A thorn fence fortifying a camp or village. From the Arabic Zariba. Cattle pen. So of course, very recently they were um fighting. In the Sudan, I suppose, the Edwardians and the late Victorians, um, in Gordon of Khartoum's um, campaigns against the um, against what Corporal uh, Corporal um, Jones on Dad's army calls the Fuzzy Wuzzies, and um, I suppose it's the relief of Mafeking and uh, various other. Various other, uh, you know, tales of daring do in which, um, you know, we went up against the the Sudanese, um, I suppose they were, Muslim warriors fighting for the, um, fighting for various warlike um, leaders. What were their names? I can't think what they were called. Who they were. Anyway, Lord Gordon does come out of it at some point um, with a few victories, doesn't he? And, uh, and clearly in the Sudan they had, uh, you know, little camps fortified with thorns against our sort of Gatling guns. And um, as Rowan Atkinson and uh, the, the uh, Richard Curtis, is it? All the No, Ben Elton, perhaps. All the, you know, sharpened pieces of mango or whatever the... Whatever the joke was in... Um, I'm losing it completely this morning. I do apologise. But, uh, you know, I don't care, really, because, um, you know, I'm just experimenting with this um, this microphone, which is sort of working. I don't like the gating, actually. It's a bit brutal, isn't it? It's a bit in and out. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I have a feeling this is recording a multi-track thing. So one of the tracks will be with processing and one of them will be without so perhaps i can hook out the unprocessed track and uh, reprocess it so it sounds a bit better but we'll see you know i mean it's listenable to you know i'm sure you can make out my words and if it's not the stellar hmv that you're used to well you know 
it's an experiment. And um, I noticed from my podcast that uh, that it's only gone on to two platforms, one of which being Spotify and the other is Anchor. And then it says, oh, we've also put it on Google Podcasts, but um, following that link leads nowhere, leads to a dry gulch, which I can't trace where that is. And all the promised big podcasting platforms like Apple, etc., that doesn't seem to be happening. So I don't know what's happening to it. It seems to have um, it seems to have run aground, and there doesn't seem to be much activity in terms of it being um, widely distributed, like series in the field with the with the corn. We therefore blocked the entrance to our zariba by filling it up with several thorny bushes. I thought they'd already done that, and left our camp with the stores entirely surrounded by this protecting hedge. We then slowly and cautiously set forth into the unknown, following the course of the little stream which flowed from our spring, as it should always serve us as a guide on our return. That's a very good idea. It does rather limit where you go, though, doesn't it? Hardly had we started when we came across signs that there were indeed wonders awaiting for us. If only you read the words, it would work out so much better. When we came across signs that there were indeed, that there were indeed wonders (laughs) awaiting us, after a few hundred yards of thick forest, containing many trees which were quite unknown to me, but which Summerlee, who was the botanist of the party, recognised as forms of conifera and of psychodaceous plants, possibly cicadaceous plants, which have long passed away in the world below, we entered a region where the stream widened and formed a considerable bog. High reeds of a peculiar type grew thickly before us. It's almost as if my mouth and brain were gradually drifting apart. High reeds of a peculiar type grew thickly before us, which were pronounced to be equisitacea, Echisitacea, or mare's tails, with tree ferns scattered amongst them, all of them swaying in the brisk wind. Suddenly, Lord John, who was walking first, halted with uplifted hand. Look at this, said he. By George, this must be the trail of the father of all birds. An enormous three toed track was imprinted in the soft mud before us. The creature, whatever it was, had crossed the swamp and passed on into the forest. We all stopped to examine that monstrous spoor. Now, the spoor, yes, they're often talking about the spoor in these uh, in these books. I'd forgotten that. And, of course, the spoor is something that um, S-P-O-O-R, spore or spoor, the track or scent of an animal. They searched around the hut for a spoor. The trail is marked by wolf spoor, or spore. So, South African, the track of a wagon or motor vehicle. That's right. We were crossing the veld when we, when we picked up the spoor of a Volkswagen Combi. That's terrible, isn't it? If it were indeed a bird, and what animal could leave such a mark? Its foot was so much larger than an ostrich's, or an ostrich's. That, it, that its height upon the same scale must be enormous. Looks like chicken tonight round the old campfire, doesn't it? Lord John looked eagerly round him and slipped two cartridges into his elephant gun. I'll stake my good name as a shikari, said he, that the track is a fresh one. Now what the heavens to Betsy is a shikari? Searching Wikipedia doesn't even exist on Wikipedia, and it doesn't exist in um, in the dictionary. So that's very disappointing. I'll stake my good name as a chicory, or a shikari, said he, but the track is a fresh one. The creature has not passed ten minutes. Look how the water is still oozing into that deeper print. By Jove! See, here is the mark of a little one. Reminds me of Alien and Aliens determination to defend all the all the eggs and things i hope we're not going to get a scene like that sure enough smaller tracks of the same general form were running parallel to the large ones 
"'But what do you make of this?' cried Professor Summerley, triumphantly, pointing to what looked like the huge print of a five-fingered human hand appearing among the three-toed marks. "'Wielden!' cried Challenger, in an ecstasy, while I did try. "'I've seen them in the Wielden clay, Kentish Weald, of course. It is a creature walking erect upon three-toed feet, and occasionally putting one of its five-fingered forepaws upon the ground.' "'Not a bird, my dear Roxton. "'Not a bird. "'A beast? "'No, a reptile. "'A dinosaur. "'Nothing else could have left such a track. "'They puzzled a worthy Sussex doctor some ninety years ago. "'But who in the world could have coped? "'Who in the world could have hoped, hoped, "'to have seen a sight like that?' "'His words died away into a whisper, "'and we all stood in motionless amazement.' Following the tracks, we had left the morass and passed through a screen of brushwood and trees. Beyond was an open glade, and in this were five of the most extraordinary creatures that I have ever seen. Crouching down among the bushes, we observed them at our leisure. They were deaf as a post, and um, totally trusting. There were, as I say, five of them, two being adults and three young ones, in size they were enormous. Even the babies were as big as elephants, while the two large ones were far beyond all creatures I have ever seen. They had slate-coloured skin which was scaled like a lizard's and shimmered where the sun shone upon it. All five were sitting up, balancing themselves upon their broad, powerful tails and their huge three-toed hind feet, while their small five-fingered front feet, they while with their fall wasn't a good idea. The stars didn't align when I decided to read this today. I've only just forced down my breakfast. I'm on my second cup of tea, which I haven't even finished. It's all been very trying. One of our cars has gone for its um, one of our many cars. Actually, we've only got one car now. That's a lie. Um, one of the car, the car has gone for its MOT today. That's exciting, isn't it? So we're all very hopeful that. Um, that it will get through. Yes, I lost my rover. I lost my rover um, some months ago. It would have cost more to repair uh, than was um, than was reasonable, and um, so it had to go. I think it's gone to the crusher, um, which is a shame. But it, uh, you know, I got it from a man who lived in Hertfordshire. It was well looked after. He'd had it from new, and uh, I think it had done. 100k, as we say in the business, and around about that, and I had it for another maybe 40k, but it had a good sound BMW 2-litre diesel engine, and it was um, very good, very good, spacious. Its only problem, and I hope this isn't getting too detailed for you, or those of you who don't love the British motor industry, um, there's no hope for you, but it was... um, you know, pretty solid, pretty sound and uh, comfy with those rather hideous velour seats, but nevertheless comfy. And um, the only problem with it, as I was going to say, was it had a uh, an unfortunate leak in the boot, which became more and more, or the trunk, as um, you Americans might say. I don't know what Australians say. They might say the boot as well. Um, the boot in the ute is... Um, that terrible case where, yes, Peter Falconio, whatever, oh dear. Anyway, moving on from Peter Falconio and uh, Wolf Creek, Wolf Bass, Wolf Blas, um, leak in the boot, so the, the carpet in the boot became very soggy. It became a, you know, you could have grown, um, you could have grown big mushrooms in there by the end. Do I make it sound like I live in exotic and... Um, and enviable life. I hope so, because it was a good car. And um, it might not have been an expensive car. But sadly, it's gone to car heaven now. And that is a big um, that's a big digression. But it's almost an obit, an obituary for the, um, for the Rover 75. Gone, but not forgotten. A nice sort of green colour. Bottle green, perhaps you might call it. And uh, gone, but not forgotten. And one day we will rise again and we will have... Maybe, maybe we don't. Maybe we don't need another car. Why do we need another car?
Um, I'll leave I'll leave that with you, and uh, you know maybe you can uh, get back to me with comments about um, what the man who once had everything should buy next, if indeed he needs one. Maybe I just need a little a little hybrid or a little electrical scooter, something recommended by Greta Thunberg. Um, there were, as I say, five of them, two being adults and three young ones. In size they were enormous, even the babies were as big as elephants, while the two large ones were far beyond all creatures I have ever seen. They had slate-coloured skin, which was scaled like a lizard's and shimmered where the sun shone upon it. All five were sitting up, balancing themselves upon their broad, powerful tails and their huge three-toed hind feet, while with their small five-fingered front feet they pulled down the branches upon which they browsed. I do not know what I can bring their appearance home to you. I do not know that I can bring their appearance home to you better than by saying they looked like monstrous kangaroos, twenty feet in length, and with skins like black crocodiles. Yeah, I'm getting that. Yeah, that's a good, uh, yeah. Black kangaroos. I do not know how long we stayed motionless gazing at this marvellous spectacle. A strong wind blew towards us and we were well concealed, so they'd never got our spoor. So there was no chance of discovery. From time to time the little ones played round their parents in unwieldy gambols. The great beasts bounding into the air. I just moved my chair then, you may have been dimly aware of it. The great beasts bounding into the air and falling with dull thuds upon the earth. The strength of the parents seemed to be limitless, for one of them, having some difficulty in reaching a bunch of foliage which grew upon a considerable-sized tree, put his forelegs round the trunk and tore it down as if it had been a sapling. The action seemed, as I thought, to show not only the great development of its muscles but also the small one of its brain, for the whole weight came crashing down upon the top of it, Oh, well, that's good. They can outsmart it, not like those scuttling things on the stainless steel tops in the kitchens of Jurassic Park. What are they called? Velociraptors. They were quite cunning and clever, weren't they? Whereas these things are a bit uh, dull-witted. So maybe it's going to go exactly the same way that we we meet some dull browsing creatures and uh, think, oh, well, they're easy to manage. They've got the uh, Elephant Express um, gun. They can take out these... Uh, dim-witted um, black kangaroos and then we meet the more cunning clever velociraptors so it was a direct rip-off possibly or possibly not not saying that please don't sue me um, for saying that who wrote uh, Crichton wrote that didn't he um, the not so admirable Crichton who lifted the lost world and um, you know well he was clever wasn't he he um, he cashed in on it, and uh, he got Go Jeff Goldblum for his troubles, which is which is great. Yeah, it's a jolly movie, Richard um, Attenborough, isn't it? Mm. Mm. The action seemed, as I thought. <clears throat> um, where are we? but also the small one of its brain. <coughs> Excuse me. For the whole weight came crashing down on top of it, and it uttered a series of shrill yelps to show that, big as it was, there was a limit to what it could endure. Yeah, shrill yelps from a giant black kangaroo when a tree falls on it through its own, through its own actions, through its own foolish actions. The incident made it think, apparently, that the neighbourhood was dangerous, for it slowly lurched off through the wood, followed by its mate and its three enormous infants. We saw the shimmering, slaty gleam of their skins between the tree trunks, and their heads undulating high above the brushwood. Then they vanished from our sight. I looked at my comrades. Lord John was standing at gaze with his finger on the trigger of his elephant gun, his eager hunter's soul shining from his fierce eyes. 
What would he not give for one such head to place between the two crossed oars above the mantelpiece in his snuggery at Albany? At the Albany. Where the characters, um, in a very popular place to live, wasn't it? The Albany. Um, the importance of being earnest doesn't, um, doesn't Jack live at the Albany or Algernon live at the Albany? And yet, his, all young men in London can't have lived at the Albany. It would have been a very crowded, crowded place, but I'm sure they could bunk up. And yet his reason held him in, for all our exploration of the wonders of this unknown land depended upon our presence being concealed from its inhabitants. Is it me? Or is it a bit clunky? No, I think it's not me. No, it is me. The two professors were in silent ecstasy. In their excitement, they had unconsciously seized each other by the hand and stood like two little children in the presence of a marvel. Challenger's cheeks bunched up into a seraphic smile and Summerlee's sardonic face softening for the moment into a one, into wonder and reverence. Nunc dimittis, he cried at last. What will they say in England of this? My dear Summerlee, I will tell you with great confidence exactly what they will say in England, said Challenger. They will say that you are an infernal liar and a scientific charlatan, exactly as you and others said of me. In the face of photographs? Faked, Summerlee, clumsily faked. In the face of specimens? Ah, there we may have them. Malone and his filthy Fleet Street crew may be all yelping our praises yet. August the 28th the day we saw five live iguanodons in a glade of maple-white land. Put it down in your diary, my young friend, and send it to your rag. Mm, some problem there. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just very gunged up today. Not that you wanted to hear that, not a very nice thing to hear. And be ready to get the toe-end of the editorial boot in return, said Lord John. Things look a bit different from the latitude of London, young fellow, my lad. There's many a man who never tells his adventures, for he can't hope to be believed. Who's to blame them? For this will seem a bit of a dream to ourselves in a month or two. What did you say they were? Iguanodons, said Summerlee. You'll find their footmarks all over the Hastings Sands, in Kent and in Sussex. The south of England was alive with them when there was a plenty of good lush green stuff to keep them going. Conditions have changed and the beasts died. Here it seems that the conditions have not changed and the beasts have lived. If ever we get out of this alive, I must have a head with me, said Lord John. Lord, how some of that Somaliland Uganda crowd would turn a beautiful pea-green if they saw it. I don't know what you chaps think, but it strikes me that we are on mighty thin ice all this time. I don't know what you chaps think, but it strikes me that we are on mighty thin ice all this time. I had the same feeling of mystery and danger around us. In the gloom of the trees there seemed a constant menace, and as we looked up into their shadowy foliage, vague terrors crept into one's heart. Could this go any worse? Could this really go any worse? <clears throat> We've just had, just to just to um, reinforce the contemporaneous nature of this broadcast, um, this was recorded during the aftermath, the afterglow of Storm Francis, which, um, which actually took out the power last night. In the middle of the night, Storm Francis ripped through the small community of dot, 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 and... Um, lay waste the power for one hour, one and a half hours, during which during which we rocked in terror as the winds, the fingers of the wind, tried to prise our corrugated iron roof from our hut number four, near Manaus, where we were... Anyway, yeah, so, yeah, last night we did have a power cut. Maybe, maybe a broken night's sleep is what has led to this, but I've told you about my Rover 75, bottle green... 140k on the clock, still going, still still pulling through all the gears. Amazing. Amazing. What more do you need to know? And uh, I said to the garagist when I was, um, when I discovered that it would cost 600 of your earth pounds to get it through his MOT, I said to the garagist, what would you buy in my, um, 
in my stead. And, uh, and I think, you know, he took one look at me and thought, well, what can he possibly afford? But he did say what I would get would be a Suzuki Swift. Well, I've never really thought of a Suzuki. I've always never really thought of the Suzuki, strangely enough, as being a car manufacturing mark. I've thought of them as motorbike manufacturers. But when I think of um, the Japanese cars, I think of Hondas, and I think, I suppose, I think of Mitsubishis um, in the car realm. And uh, maybe the Subaru, is that Japanese? I don't know. Perhaps it is. Anyway, I think of Hondas primarily, and Toyotas, of course. Hondas and Toyotas are the main ones. Colt, Mitsubishi, um, Suzuki, less so. So I've never really thought about a Suzuki, but he seemed to be suggesting that you couldn't go wrong with a Suzuki. I've, I've had a look at them. Of course, if you want something a bit more exciting, he said, you know, you need the uh, 1.6 or 1.5, but... Um, I think those exciting days are over. The 1.2 uh, that sips sips at um, unleaded petrol would be fine. And, uh, you know, I don't need an estate. Um, just a hatchback. Simple, simple wants, simple needs, a Suzuki Swift. It's a small, modest car, what an American would call a, probably a, a, a micro car, it's not a Dodge Charger or a or a um, a Chrysler LeBaron. Um, was that a car? There was a LeBaron at one point. Whether it was a Chrysler, I'm not quite sure, or a Plymouth. Um, I used to like those AMC Gremlins. Do you remember those? <laughs> How to lose all your subscribers <laughs> within two minutes of total total waffle um or <laughs> or the checker cab company used to make some interesting interesting um vehicles there was a very long checker cab which was like a like a stretch limo only in the form of a cab um from checker i can't remember what, they were, what the actual uh, model name was but uh, i'm sure someone will tell me <coughs> one last cough and uh it's 10 23 Time's ticking on. Let's please, God, let's finish this chapter. Um, but in this world of wonders, what other survivals might there not be? What fierce active horrors ready to pounce upon us from their lair among the rocks or brushwood? I knew little of prehistoric life, but I had a clear remembrance of one book which I had read in which it spoke of creatures who would live upon our lions and tigers as a cat lives upon mice. What if these also were to be found in the woods of Maple White Land? It was destined that on this very morning, let's remember that the chapter is titled, you know, didn't what brilliant things have happened, our first in the new country, we were to find out what strange hazards lay around us. It was a loathsome adventure, and one of which I hate to think. If, as Lord John said, the glade of the Iguanodons will remain with us as a dream, then surely the swamp of the pterodactyls will forever be our nightmare. Let me set down exactly what occurred. Ooh, the swamp of the pterodactyls. Nobody wants that, do they? Nobody wants that. I'm not looking forward to the swamp of the pterodactyls. We passed very slowly through the woods, partly because Lord Roxton acted as scout before he would let us advance. Oh, what a preening peacock Lord Roxton is, and partly because at every second step one or other of our professors would fall with a cry of wonder before some flower or insect which presented him with a new type. I mean, it's reasonable now to say, isn't it, that these two professors, one of them a sort of botanist and the other more of a zoologist you know had had an immense knowledge and they you know could talk at length and identify all these different things now we're so specialized that we would probably have you know um 20 scientists all devoting themselves to different types of moss um and so an expedition could only actually go with about a thousand people just to study the um 
the things that grew up on the ground, like, you know, moss and lichen. Yeah, we had to take a thousand people because um, she only does the, the red moss and he only does the um, the uh, certain sorts of lichen. You know, it would be ridiculous. Over-specialisation, that's where we are, and that's, that's where we are with all this um, strange medical world we find ourselves in. We've got so... Um, specialised that no one can challenge anyone else it seems on whatever scientific hogwash they come out with well you can't say that you're just a doctor you you haven't studied epidemiology of the um whatever it all seems very very odd and um and it feeds into that idea that uh, you know when society uh, you know when the when when they unplug the last atm and um the last supermarket fails to get its delivery of um, spaghetti hoops, that we will be unable to look after ourselves. The super wealthy will have all withdrawn to New Zealand and, uh, you know, it will turn into a zombie apocalypse for the rest of us. The only people who will survive are, you know, some some very clever tribes in South America, Africa and, uh, you know, the Pacific. And uh, we'll sort of start again. Well, we won't because the um, the elites who've withdrawn to their dumbs and bunkers in New Zealand will uh, will decimate the rest of the world, and then uh, you know they'll have a a viable population to start again and uh, you know enjoy their enjoy their wealth. And um, I suppose that's how it's going to go. Um, is that too bleak? Too too grim? Only joking, folks. Um, don't don't be downhearted. Um, as long as there's a walnut whip and a copy of Woman's Own, we'll push through. A belt of brushwood led up to a tangle of rocks. The whole plateau was strewn with boulders. Let's go back a little bit. I've lost my thread. We may have travelled two or three miles in all. Keeping to the right of the line of the stream, when we came upon a considerable opening in the trees... A belt of brushwood led up to a tangle of rocks. The whole plateau was strewn with boulders. We were walking slowly towards these rocks among bushes which reached over our waists when we became aware of a strange, low, gabbling and whistling sound which filled the air with a constant clamour and appeared to come from some spot immediately before us. Lord John held up his hand as a signal for us to stop and he made his way swiftly, stooping and running to the line of the rocks. He's such a show-off, isn't he? We saw him peep over them and give a gesture of amazement. Let's think what that gesture might be. He clapped his hand to his forehead, perhaps, or, or he put his little finger at the corner of his mouth and moved it, rotated it like... Um, like um, Austin Powers. Then he stood staring as if forgetting us, so utterly entranced was he by what he saw. Finally, he waved us to come on, holding up his hand as a signal for caution. His whole bearing made me feel that something wonderful but dangerous lay before us. Creeping to his side, we looked over the rocks. The place into which we gazed was a pit, and May, in the early days, have been one of the smaller volcanic blowholes of the plateau. It was bowl-shaped, and at the bottom, some hundreds of yards from where we lay, were pools of green-scummed, stagnant water, fringed with bulrushes. It was a weird place in itself, but its occupants made it seem like a scene from the Seven Circles of Dante. The place was a rookery, of pterodactyls. There were hundreds of them congregated within view. All the bottom area around the water edge was alive with their young ones and with hideous mothers brooding upon their leathery, yellowish eggs. From this crawling, flapping mass of obscene reptilian life came the shocking clamour which filled the air and the mephitic, horrible, musty odour which turned us sick but above, perched each upon its own stone, tall, grey and withered, more like dead and dried specimens than actual living creatures, 
sat the horrible males, absolutely motionless save for the rolling of their red eyes or an occasional snap of their rat-trap beaks as a dragonfly went past them. Their huge membranous wings were closed by folding their forearms so that they sat like gigantic old women wrapped in hideous web-coloured shawls and with their ferocious heads protruding above them. Large and small, not less than a thousand of these filthy creatures lay in the hollow before us. Our professor would gladly have stayed there all day, so entranced were they by this opportunity of studying the life of a prehistoric age. They pointed out the fish and dead birds lying about among the rocks as proving the nature of the food of these creatures, and I heard them congratulating each other on having cleared up the point why the bones of this flying dragon are found in such great numbers in certain well-defined areas, as in the Cambridge green sand, since it was now seen that, like penguins, they lived in gregarious fashion. Finally, however, Challenger, bent upon proving some point which Summerlee had contested, thrust his head over the rock and nearly brought destruction upon us all. In an instant the nearest male gave a shrill whistling cry, oh yes, and flapped its twenty-foot wingspan. No, it flapped its twenty-foot span of leathery wings as it soared up into the air. The females and young ones huddled together beside the water while the whole circle of sentinels rose one after the other and sailed off into the sky. It was a wonderful sight to see at least a hundred creatures of such enormous size and hideous appearance all swooping like swallows, with swift shearing wing-strokes above us. But soon we realised that it was not one on which we could afford to linger. Yeah, I get that. At first the great brutes flew round in a huge ring, good idea, as if to make sure what the exact extent of the danger might be. Then the flight grew lower, and the circle narrower, until they were whizzing and whizzing round and round us. You see, whizzing, I wonder whether whizzing, it has a sort of childish-like infantile ring now, it whizzed towards me, but then perhaps whizzing was a very exciting and daring-do sort of word, which doesn't have the sort of comical connotations that perhaps it does now. Then the flight grew lower and the circle narrower until they were whizzing round and round us, the dry rustling flap of their huge slate-coloured wings filling the air with a volume of sound that made me think of Hendon Aerodrome upon a race day. Now Hendon Aerodrome presumably is a forerunner to Heathrow. Is it out in West London? Hendon Police College is near Heathrow, perhaps. "'Make for the wood and keep together!' cried Lord John, clubbing his rifle. "'The brutes mean mischief!' <laughs> "'They do, those naughty brutes. Clubbing his rifle. What does that mean, do you think?' He clubbed his rifle. "'It must have some sort of... Uh, let's have a look, see. Let's have a look on this... Uh, Marvel of the age, the Kindle. Uh, I press it with my finger. It looks for it to club. Well, it won't be... It won't be the most obvious definition of club, will it? Um, I think uh, to club one's rifle. To club together? No, it's none of those. Uh, to club his rifle we may never know <coughs> and um, any advice on a postcard please do send it I'm always grateful to receive the wisdom of the ages um, via the comments section the moment we attempted to retreat the circle closed in upon us and the tips of the wings of those nearest to us nearly touched our faces we beat at them with the stocks of our guns, but there was nothing solid or vulnerable to strike. Well, wasn't there? Then suddenly, out of the whizzing, slate-coloured circle, 
He loves slate colour, doesn't he? Quite loves whizzing. A long neck shot out, and a fierce beak made a thrust at us. Another and another followed. Summerlee gave a cry and put his hand to his face, from which the blood was streaming. I felt a prod at the back of my neck. No, don't. that's not the right time to do this. Um, and turned dizzy with the shock. Challenger fell, and as I stooped to pick him up, I was again struck from behind and dropped on the top of him. At the same instant I heard the crash of Lord John's elephant gun, and looking up saw one of the creatures with a broken wing struggling upon the ground, spitting and gurgling at us with a wide-opened beak and bloodshot, goggled eyes, like some devil in a medieval picture. Its comrades had flown higher at the sudden sound and were circling above our heads. "'Now!' cried Lord John. "'Now for our lives!' We staggered through the brushwood. And even as we reached the trees, the harpies were on us again. Summerlee was knocked down, but we tore him up and rushed among the trunks. Once there we were safe, for those huge wings had no space for their sweep beneath the branches. As we limped homewards, sadly mauled and discomfited, we saw them for a long time flying at a great height against the deep blue sky above our heads, soaring round and round, no bigger than wood pigeons, with their eyes no doubt still following our progress. At last, however, as we reached the thicker woods, they gave up the chase and we saw them no more. A most interesting and convincing experience, said Challenger, as we halted beside the brook, and he bathed a swollen knee. We are exceptionally well informed, Summerlee, as to the habits of the enraged pterodactyl. Summerlee was wiping the blood from a cut in his forehead, while I was tying up a nasty stab in the muscle of the neck. Oh, yes, he experienced something unpleasant from behind. Lord John had the shoulder of his coat torn away, but the creature's teeth had only grazed the flesh. It is worth noting, Challenger continued, that our young friend has received an undoubted stab, while Lord John's coat could only have been torn by a bite. In my own case, I was beaten about the head by their wings, so we have had a remarkable exhibition of their various methods of offence. It has been touch and go for our lives, said Lord John gravely, and I could not think of a more rotten sort of death and be outed than to be outed by such filthy vermin. I was sorry to fire my rifle, but by Jove, there was no great choice. We should not be here if you hadn't, said I, with conviction. We should not be here if you hadn't, said I, with conviction. It may do harm, said he. Among these woods there must be many loud cracks from splitting or falling trees, which would be just like the sound of a gun. But now, if you are of my opinion, we have had thrills enough for one day— and had best get back to the surgical box at the camp for some carbolic. Who knows what venom these beasts may have in their hideous jaws? Well, indeed, and um, that's what they had, that's all they had then, no antibiotics, but out they would set with great bravery and resolution to um, conquer the world, explore the world, with just a bar of carbolic soap or a bottle of carbolic solution to dab on their wounds, with a cotton wool ball, and um, and it wouldn't stop them. And of course, you know, if you were if you were seriously nibbled by a pterodactyl, you might well get a, a venomous um, <coughs> dose of blood poisoning, and you might indeed die. The numbers of people who expired in the colonies um, in India, fevers of all sorts in Africa. Around the world, you know, the hundreds and thousands, and life was cheap. They were the um, they were the frontiersmen, expendable, building the empire. Nobody cared because ultimately they were just uh, sending the uh, raw materials and the ivory and the cotton and the spices and um, the kernels, twelve secret spices, back to good old Blighty, where and uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about really. Let's carry on. But surely no men ever had just such a day since the world began. Some fresh surprise was ever in store for us. 
When, following the course of our brook, we at last reached our glade and saw the thorny barricade of our camp, we thought that our adventures were at an end. But we had something more to think of before we could rest. The gate of Fort Challenger had been untouched, the walls were unbroken, and yet it had been visited by some strange and powerful creature in our absence. No footmark showed a trace of its nature, and only the overhanging branch of the enormous ginkgo tree suggested how it might have come and gone. But of its malevolent strength there was ample evidence in the condition of our stores. They were strewn at random all over the ground, and one tin of meat had been crushed into pieces so as to extract the contents. A case of cartridges had been shattered into matchwood, and one of the brass shells lay shredded into pieces beside it. Again the feeling of vague terror came upon our souls, and we gazed round with frightened eyes at the dark shadows which lay around us, in all of which some fearsome shape might be lurking. How good it was when we were hailed by the voice of Zambo, and, going to the edge of the plateau, saw him sitting grinning at us upon the top of the opposite pinnacle, "'All well, Massa Challenger, all well,' he cried. "'Me stay here, no fear. "'You always find me when you want.' "'His honest black face and the immense view before us, "'which carried us halfway back to the affluence of the Amazon, "'helped us to remember that we really were upon this earth "'in the twentieth century and had not, by some magic, "'been conveyed to some raw planet in its earliest and wildest state.' how difficult it was to realise that the violet line upon the far horizon was well advanced to that great river upon which huge steamers ran, and folk talked of the small affairs of life, while we, marooned among the creatures of a bygone age, could but gaze towards it and yearn for all that it meant. One other memory remains with me of this wonderful day, and with it I will close this letter— the two professors, their tempers aggravated, no doubt by their injuries, had fallen out as to whether our assailants were of the genus Pterodactylus or Dimorphodon, or Pterodactylus, Pterodactylus or Dimorphodon, and high words had ensued. To avoid their wrangling, I moved some little way apart and was seated smoking upon the trunk of a fallen tree when Lord John strolled over in my direction. "'I say, Malone,' said he, "'do you remember that place where the, those beasts were?' He's developed an unfortunate... <laughs> he's developed an unfortunate speech impediment. Very clearly. A sort of volcanic pit, was it not?' "'Exactly,' said I. "'Did you notice the soil? Rocks. "'But round the water, where the reeds were? "'It was a bluish soil. It looked like clay. "'Exactly.' "'A volcanic tube full of blue clay.' "'What of that?' I asked. "'Oh, nothing, nothing,' said he, "'and strolled back to where the voices of the contending men of science "'rose in a prolonged duet, "'the high strident note of Summerlee rising and falling "'to the sonorous bass of Challenger. "'I should have thought no more of Lord John's remark "'were it not that once again that night "'I heard him mutter to himself,' "'Blue clay, clay in a volcanic tube.' "'They were the last words I heard "'before I dropped into an exhausted sleep. "'And no wonder he dropped into an exhausted sleep, "'because, you know, they had encountered "'all sorts of things that day, had they not. "'The, the pterodactyls living in their slimy, "'heathenish, um, umbrella-ish sort of the mothers and the and the young broods and the, and the males each with a rock to themselves and then pursued and stabbed you know very nasty and of course the uh, the family of those big birds the um, crocodilian like um, kangaroos that they saw walking along and uh, yeah and then something's got into their onto the into their zabida their sudanese thorn um, encircled camp, which um, did them no good. Something's hopped over the thorns, and uh, could it have been Zambo? I don't think so. He's uh, safe on the pinnacle. 
and uh, waving to them keenly and uh, asserting asserting um, their superiority over him by calling calling them massa. I think didn't he? Did he do that? Oh, those were the days. Those were the days. Not. Our all well, Massa Challenger, all well, he cried. Me stay here, no fear. You always find me when you... What a loyal chap he is. And all all for the price of a walnut whip. And that, my dear friends, is the end of what was a real struggle. And if it's if it was a struggle for me, I fear it's certainly going to be a struggle for you. But that was the... Roadcaster Pro in action, and I'll try to make it uh, sound a little bit better than it does through these headphones. Um, and we'll see what it sounds like. And if it's bearable, let me know. If it's unbearable, let me know. If you'd rather, I uh, I um, joined the Rover Seventy Five at the Crushing Yard. Uh, let me know as well. And um, but it's been fun. I hope this podcast does get put out soon on Apple. Um, because that's the big podcast place, isn't it? And I know I've done lots of weird podcasts over the years, but I'm quite enjoying this one. And um, it's a question of thinking what we're going to do after this one ends, because we're at 55% of The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And um, the next chapter is going to be chapter 11. Sorry about my voice. Sorry about the coughing. Um, Perhaps I've had too much clipper tea today. Perhaps I've talked too much about the road. Perhaps I've overindulged talk about um, my former car. Uh, dead but not forgotten. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening. And um, let's have a look at the uh, little micro SD card and see what the hell is going on. Um, farewell. Let's um, play a sound effect. That's a sound effect.